Warning! This episode of The Secret Cinema contains discussions of disturbing and adult content. So, heads up! Oh, I should never come here this place. This place is truly a damned place! Secret Cinema, the film podcast that doesn't want to know, it needs to know! I'm Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and on today's episode we're discussing Takashi Miike's horrific 2006 short film, Imprint. Two important notes before we get into it. First off, this is our first episode since the Harvey Weinstein news came out and implicated a broad swath of male Hollywood in the dismissal and cover-up of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and rape. Carrie and I consider The Secret Cinema to be a feminist podcast, so we're obviously disgusted with all of this news and hope it leads to jail time and major changes in American culture, to say the very least. But as an aside, I'm disappointed that we chose to cover The Burning, a film that could be called the genesis of Weinstein's Hollywood career, before this news came out. In the episode, we do touch on the film's casual misogyny, but knowing what we know now loads that misogyny with an even darker subtext, something I regret not being able to explore with our coverage. Our episode on Apt Pupil actually dives into similar accusations directed toward Brian Singer, and I would recommend it for anyone interested in this continuing issue. Second, longtime listeners have likely noticed that our bi-weekly release schedule has fallen off in the past year. Carrie and I have no intention of ending the podcast anytime soon, but a combination of lack of available guests and us possibly moving in the next few months means that releases will continue to be spotty for the immediate future. We'll still get them out as close to bi-weekly as we can, though, and hope to be back on a consistent schedule as soon as possible. Anyway, thanks for your patience and continued patronage, and here's Carrie with the plot summary. An American journalist travels to a remote Japanese island full of prostitutes and pimps in search of his long-lost love, Komomo. It is there that he meets a disfigured woman who claims to have known her. She tells him that Komomo hung herself, but the journalist doesn't believe her and pushes for the truth. He then hears a much darker story and learns that knowing the truth can leave a lasting imprint. So, in case you've never heard of Imprint before, our content warning has never been more necessary. Imprint tells a story that gets more horrific as it progresses, and the closest thing to a lesson the film provides is the question, do you really want to know? Our first clip, one of the film's few non-expository sequences, revolves around this question, and while it should give you a sense of the film's atmosphere, it's also an opportunity to highlight the bizarre performance of Billy Drago. Drago, however exactly you pronounce that last name. But Drago is probably best known for playing hitman Frank Nitti in The Untouchables, and based on the line readings he gives here, you can understand why he's not more famous. Here's that clip. You're a liar. My 
Kabobo would never have done that. She hung herself. She's dead. I understand. Nothing you say, nothing I do will bring her back to me, but I need to know the truth! you do. Horse never tell the truth, do we? Just tell me the truth. I wonder why people always want to know the truth. Sometimes it's better not to know. Sometimes the lie is better. Oh, no, no, please. Please, please, I'm begging you, please. I need to know what happened. Do you really want to know? <laughs> and for our second and final clip, I won't spoil what's happening, you'll find that out in our discussion, but the sound design, not to mention the intense screams of terror, should convey the intense unpleasantness of the film's brand of horror. The clip is about a minute long, but if you hear it and really want to know more, then join us on the other side for our discussion of Imprint. <coughs> for quite a while, I guess not see, long time no hear, uh, but we are here for a... Long time no listen. Long time no listen, yes. It's been very busy lately. Carrie and I are up on the go and in the move and uh, all sorts of other (laughs) (laughs) terms that you would use, but we're back. We're here for a special Halloween episode of The Secret Cinema, and by Halloween, we we did a typical episode, but watching a horror movie. (laughs) This is something we've done very often, but we went uh, overboard this time and watched a very horrifying movie. We pushed the boundaries. And that movie is an episode of a television show (laughs) called Masters of Horror, and the episode is Takashi Miike's episode, Imprint. Uh, from It was made in 2006. I don't think it got released until 2007. And this isn't called The Secret Television or, <laughs> or anything like that. But this episode was famously uh, Masters of Horrors... It, Masters of Horror. I yeah, know. let's give a little background. Yeah. So, uh, Mick Garris, he is a horror film director, writer, 
uh, all around. Creep. He's a friend with he's he's like one of those guys who's friends with tons of really talented people and yeah. must be really awesome to hang out. I was going to I was going to say all around creep lover. Yeah. Uh but he created this television on Showtime in the early uh mid to late 2000s and he got all his horror buddies to come in and direct an episode, or as I like to think of it as a short movie. Yeah. Because that's really what it is. It's every single director got to make, like, a 60-minute movie. Yeah. So it's it's like long-form television, like you said, because it's an episode. What I think of it is, we just saw Two Evil Eyes. and Well, we didn't see all of it. We saw just George Romero's segment from Two Evil Eyes. And Two Evil Eyes was released in theaters, but it's two hour-long short films. And we watched an hour-long short film, but it was originally designed to play on television. And that's what Carrie's sure. saying. Like, Masters of Horror was a television show. Yeah, so Mick Garris, he invited uh, Takashi Miike to do an episode, and um, I actually have never seen any of Takashi Miike's other movies except for Happiness of the Katakuris, and that didn't really prepare me for this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, but I, but uh, he's mostly famous for doing the movie Audition, which even if you haven't seen, if you know anything about horror movies, you've probably heard of Audition because it always ends up in those like top ten lists yeah. of like the scariest movies ever made. And that's always like in the top ten. And it's really funny too that you bring up Audition because <clears throat> Audition is so clearly like, an influence for Takashi Miike's segment in this in a lot of ways. Like, he's he's returning to a lot of familiar themes, even in terms of, like, the story structure. There's a similar build uh, to everything. But I, we really, quickly, I want to get to this, because we've kind of gotten far away from this already. The reason we're covering a television oh, right. short film, <laughs> you interrupter, uh, was that this was considered too graphic for Showtime. A channel which um, is basically a channel where you could go and watch, like, Showgirls. <laughs> Something like Showgirls, totally <coughs> fine. Uh, basically, the most violent R-rated movie you can think of, fine. It's Showtime. You pay for it. It's like HBO. This was too much. This was this could not be shown on Showtime. I couldn't find anything online that says this was the only thing they ever refused to air, but... It definitely is one of the only things they ever refused it was, to air. It was when it. I remember when this when this happened. When it was like when Masters of Horror came out and they uh, and this came out separately. I do feel like it was talked about. Like this was something you heard. Uh, like it was a big deal that an episode of a television like anthology series was too hot for TV. <laughs> and so it was like that's the reason I watched. I watched this. I, I was either in high school or, like, first year of college. Actually, considering the year, it was probably first year of college. But I remember watching it because of the reputation, and it, like, really, really lives up to the reputation of being banned for TV. And honestly, I think the most interesting thing about this movie is what about it makes it too offensive for American television. Like, that is a very fascinating thing to think of compared to so many of the other things that are okay. Like, what about this? And granted, it is totally extreme, but I feel like there's there's a certain level of, like, societal uh, attachment to these things that make it so much more extreme for us, whereas 
clearly a Japanese filmmaker was willing to touch on these issues. Yeah. For me, I can't believe that you wanted to watch this. Uh, <laughs> again? That you, yeah, again. I, this was the first time I'd watched it, and I'm just going to tell you right now, Paulo, I'm never going to watch this again. <laughs> yep. Well, notice that we didn't do a pre-screening. Uh, long-time listeners might know that we tend to try to watch most of the movies uh, multiple times. Some of them do have a benefit for being... Uh, like getting a surprise Studied viewing. More. Dillinger is dead is a perfect example of one that it it works fine the first viewing because the impact is there. And this one is a perfect example of a movie that does not need to get watched multiple times. Definitely helps that it's short, but a lot of it. I guess we, we kind of are you ready to start getting into the movie? Yeah, uh, because a lot of it. The reason I mean I, I don't it, know if I I'm ready. Yeah. but I'm ready. Broadly, the reason I compare it to Audition is that it has this very similar buildup where it seems like nothing is going to happen. Like I, at one point, I very early. I mean, well, very early. Carrie asked me how far we were into the movie, and I paused it. We were 15 minutes in, like a quarter of the way in, and nothing had really happened. Like yeah. nothing of significance had happened. Now, we haven't gotten into the backstory yet because this movie is basically uh, a flashback that leads into like a more complex flashback, which leads into a full fully explanatory flashback. And so, getting to the point where that story is told is mostly just like. A little bit of mood setting. Takashi Miike is a very... I, I, I haven't seen enough of his movies, and I haven't seen any of them recently, but I did get the feel from this episode of Masters of Horror versus other ones that Takashi Miike does way more visually than uh, the other directors do. Or at least... Yeah, really... well, he's got... <clears throat> he... Uh, I, I did some research on him, and he is he is openly said uh, to have a trademark for the surreal. Yeah. Um, and then... One of the quotes I found from him was, I can only work realistically while wanting to depict something unrealistic. <laughs> so, I think that's pretty telling. That explains happiness of the category. Oh, for sure. for sure, yeah. I mean, that explains this movie, too. Um, I, wa I just want to say this right off the bat. One of my absolute favorite things in my entire life is when I hear uh, Paolo giggle in sheer horror slash uh, fascination, and I got to hear that while we watched this movie yeah. because you were so you were like so shocked that you were watching something that you had already seen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you were like, I can't believe I'm putting myself through this, and you were just giggling like a crazy person. Yeah. And I wasn't even watching the scene that you were watching, but you actually, at one point, you were like, I can't believe I'm watching this. I can't believe well, I'm hey, watching this. Well, hey, let's get to that part of the movie. <laughs> I know, but I wanted to just point out that that happened because right. it was really... the This movie, I would not say is an enjoyable viewing experience. No. But, <laughs> but that was an enjoyable moment for me. Yeah, this movie, like, <laughs> totally... It, I mean, well, okay... The way it plays out, it feels like almost like an H.P. Lovecraft story or an Edgar Allan Poe story, where like oh, yeah. a man from a of diff, uh, like from the civilized world travels to uh, an obscure island and uh, f I, tries to find somebody, but meets someone else, and that person tells them a story, and as the story goes, they learn darker and darker things. It's like that classic structure. It's been like around for hundreds of years. Yeah, but uh, it's definitely. <laughs> Played out like a folktale. But it has this sort of like 
like, I mean, there's a brutality to it that I associate with Takashi Miike. I don't feel like it needs to be, like, contextualized further. But the the tone, like, the dread of this thing, there's, is so, it is so bleak. Almost in, like, I, I, it's, it's almost, this is underselling it, but I think of, like, a William Friedkin movie. How there's, like, a joylessness to a, a Friedkin movie because everything you're seeing is, like, implicitly bad or evil or horrific. And that's the sort of movie where it's, like, there is no good. Like, the longer you further into this movie, the darker the world is. And, like, every chance they have, they, like, they give a character, like, a defect or, like, like they linger on something a little bit longer so it's even more horrific. Like, like um, I mean, we have to just get into it because there's so many specific details. We're basically <clears throat> just going to have to talk through what happens scene by scene. Uh, there's not a lot of... Uh, there's not a lot of like subtext to this one. Well, yeah, and we can we can pretty quickly knock out the the basic structure of the movie, yeah. which is like you said, an American man goes to what I'm going to refer to as Whore Island, yeah. <laughs> and he is looking for his long lost love, who just happens to be a whore. Her name is Kamomo. He within like what like ten minutes of being on the island learns that she's dead. Yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah, <laughs> and. But he decides to stay on the island because the, the guy who, who runs the island is like, you don't want to leave during the night. Bad things will happen. And so he picks out a whore to spend the night with, but that he's not interested in sex. He's more interested in learning what happened to Kamomo. And, of course, the, the woman that he chooses... Just happens to be the the woman who's like the outlier within yeah, the when, the horror community when he, on the island. He gets to like the the the. I Maybe say I should. I'm not. I'm not going to call him horse. No. But. The the quote from the movie is quote demons and whores are the only ones living here end quote <laughs> like yeah not, you're not too you've heard the word whore used a lot in this film you're yeah. kind of just going with its own lingo but just a few contextual things to so. The movie starts with this American journalist riding, like, a boat to the brothel, and all the Japanese men are giving him shit because it's like, oh, white boy likes Japanese women. It's like that sort of thing. Yeah, they even ask him if he's hung like a horse. Some, yeah, yeah, something like that. But then as they're having this conversation, the boat hits a pregnant woman's corpse floating in the water. Oh, yeah. And the, the boat... Uh, the, the, guy who's, the guy who's uh, driving the boat, he, like, takes a paddle and is, like, trying to shove the woman's corpse down, and he says, she's heavy as lead, maybe with child, and then they just move on. But that's, like, the, one of the first minutes of the movie, is that. But they get to the brothel island, and there is a guy <gasps> who, he looks like, I, I, I didn't think to look it up, he looked so much like the um the guy who played the Oompa Loompas in the new Willy Wonka, the Tim Burton Willy Wonka. Yeah, he uh, was a little person. But he, but he looked like that specific actor. He looked like Deep Roy. But he had like half he had one of his nostrils missing. Like that's like they give him this like very blatant physical defect where part of his face is missing. And then when the, when uh, the American journalist gets to the <clears throat> brothel, it's like this like bamboo cage sort of uh, like a fancy cage. It's like backlit and has walls and everything. But they're re- the women are reaching out through the bamboo, and there's this one woman who's sitting in the far back corner, so you only see her in silhouette. But she's like clearly with the prostitutes. She's not saying anything. A uh, madam comes into the room and like yells at her and was like, "Get up!" Kicks her and like like yeah, tries to make her get up. Do and, your job. But that's the one that the journalist picks. Yeah, and, and it's. It's, it's later shown, once she comes to his room, and they end up having tea or whatever, 
And it's later shown that she has a facial deformity where, I mean, for lack of a, a better way to put it, she kind of has Joker face. Yeah, I wrote half Joker face. <laughs> <laughs> where she's she's beautiful. Yeah. Um, but one half of her face is kind of, like, slanted up towards... It's like it's pulled up. Like, the skin has been... Yeah, like, like above her ear, there's a string, and, like, her face got pulled up that way. And so her eye is pulled up that way. Her mouth is, is like, elongated and pulled up with that way. That's what I mean by Joker face, where her... Yeah. Uh, it's the smile, yeah. Yeah, she's got the really long smile. Um, but she's otherwise beautiful, and... She ends up, the, the guy, you know, he, uh, she tells him, oh, Kamoa died, and uh, he's like, why tell me, tell me. He was so, uh, yeah, he uh, was so overly <clears throat> uh, dramatic. Even given the fact that he says, like, she was the love, Kamomo was the love of my life, I promised I would come back for her, and then he found out he was, she finds out she was, she's dead and everything. Even still, Billy Drago's performance in this <laughs> is so over the top, consistently. And I want to step outside the movie again to, to talk about this, but um, this movie is entirely made by and almost entirely starring Japanese people. And every Japanese person does a really great job with their English, especially considering that this is for television. I like, thought the movie was going to be in Japanese. Me too. I Because there's it. only one American actor. I remembered it being in Japanese. It just made sense to me that way. But I was thinking of like, if Americans made an episode of television for Japan, they would not do as good of a job, like, like learning the, the language. Oh, sure. And like, and, and so like this movie, I feel like every Japanese person has like, an almost aristocratic accent because of like how professional everyone is. And then Billy Drago, who is the one American guy is so consistently terrible and talks in a way that makes no sense that it only drew more attention to how great everybody's English was besides yeah. him. Like it just, it, it's so weird. I hope I, I don't know. Like that it was just was, I just could not believe how they couldn't find one American actor to make the whole ensemble <laughs> good. Like, everybody is good and believable in the most absurd of situations in this movie, except for the man who just has to ask questions. And yeah. And the story told to him. Yeah, he doesn't even act, he stays in that one room the whole time. But, okay, so he's like, oh, Kamomo, what happened to her? She, Tell he, me. She, it was specifically when, when she tells him that, He's, she's dead. He goes, God damn! <laughs> that level of overacting. Yeah, he, he's not, he's, uh, I don't know, Paula, if I found out you were dead, I'd be pretty upset. And he's, like, not that upset. <laughs> yeah, it's, he's, like, pretty performative. It's like an actor playing an actor playing a guy who's mourning. It's, like, so, so weird. Okay, so... Uh, do we ever learn the name of Joker Face Girl? No. Okay. We don't learn his name either. Okay, so I'm just gonna call her... Call her... You call her Blue Hair or Joker Face? <laughs> or, uh... Or, I mean, he's journalist. Or American. Yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna, um, call her, uh, uh Blue Hair. Because that's nicer than yeah. Joker Face. <laughs> but, so, blue old Blue Hair, uh, tells him that Kamomo... She was always very kind to her, and uh, even though she has her facial deformity, and 
Komomo was accused by the other um, prostitutes of stealing something from one of the madams. And essentially, the madams and all the other prostitutes torture Komomo and then she kills herself. That's what Blue Hair tells the journalists that happens. And it's, it's so funny that you phrase it that way because, like, this sequence of her Komomo being tortured is easily the most horrific part of the whole movie. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> I didn't watch it because all of a sudden it, the, the scene started and Paolo goes, Carrie, don't watch this! <laughs> yeah. Don't watch it! Don't watch it! This is the sequence during which I was like, why am I watching this? How am I getting through this? Paolo, Paolo's going, ah! Ah! And he's like, oh my god, I'm sweating! I'm sweating! And yeah, I genuinely broke uh, in a sweat during the scene. It was so stressful. But here's what the torture is. Oh my god. So as I'm gonna just put my fingers. We kind of mentioned we kind of mentioned before uh, Takashi Miike borrows a lot from Audition. I did forget to mention that the Joker face thing reminded me of how in Ichi the Killer there's a guy who has like a super smile, but that's its own thing. In Audition, uh, very famously, spoiler alert for a almost 20 year old movie, uh, the main character gets needle torture. Uh, The she gets needles, I believe, shoved in, like, the skin above and below his eyeballs. Like, needles, they're pushed in, and the woman says, kitty, 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 as she pushes them in. <laughs> what? It's, it's super fucked up. Um, but in this, uh, Komomo is tortured with needles to a degree that is unbelievable. <laughs> it is oh, the worst oh thing my God. I think I've ever seen. I always think of as, like, the worst needle thing. I always think of in Saw 2, when they the group of people are trying to escape the house, and they have to get all these keys to get uh, to eat like a different room, and you know, and then each room reveals itself to have like another terrible torture. But one of the rooms contains a pit full of syringes, and the key is somewhere in the pit full of syringes, and they end up throwing someone in it to get the key. Oh, it's so oh, it's so but awful. This, and this, this is worse. This is worse. The thing, the closest thing that I could think of to compare the scene to is it's just a brief moment, but this moment has always struck me in the first uh well not the first in the american remake of the ring in gore verbinski's the ring there's a clip in the tape from the ring where it's a it's like a thumb or a finger pressing on a nail uh, like a like a nail that you would hammer in and the nail pushes through the finger and you see it pop the the fingernail off it comes through the other side that is the level of trauma we're kind of talking about here but stretched out to like five minutes of first Komomo is basically like tied up so that she is like completely like open and vulnerable they light some sticks they they get some sticks and they light them and they shove them into her armpits and burn her because basically they said they can't leave any marks whatever they do to her she's a beautiful prostitute they need her for more which is so weird because then they just leave marks all over they'll do things that like could leave marks but Marks that would, if they led scars, wouldn't happen. And that's why they... Oh, it's so fucked So up. what they do... Nobody's going to listen to this episode well, whatever. what we're describing. But yeah, well, there'll be accurate <laughs> warnings. So what they do... I'm not going to be super gruesome about it. They shove needles, long needles, under each Ugh. of the fingernails in her hand. And so they take between, like, the fingernail and the, the soft part of the finger, and they show it with, like, this 
there's you can see the needle un, like through the fingernail going into the finger. There's also this level of sound design that is yeah. I wasn't watching it, and I didn't. It didn't matter that I wasn't watching it because right. I could hear it. Yeah, of um, like skin being broken, and they do it like they show multiples of the nails. Like so, it's not just that you have one long gruesome scene that's implied. It's like shoved in your fucking and, eyes. And <laughs> here, here's where I'll remind everyone that this movie was banned from showing. Time for graphic and disturbing content. And we haven't even gotten to the disturbing content yet. Yeah, the thing that hilariously was considered worse than this, which, again, American cultural norms. This is so much worse than the other thing. But, uh, so they do this. For me, at least. For me, too. They do this with all the fingers, and then they shove for measure a bunch of needles into her gums. So, like, her Ugh. lips are, like, propped Ugh. open. That they don't linger on as much. It's not as brutal as the Ugh. fingers, but you have already been super traumatized. I'm, like, sweating again just thinking about it. It's so fucking awful. To quote Apollo, I can't believe I'm watching this. <laughs> Why did I do this? So. Um, yeah, so then they show Komomo, like, strung up like, from the ceiling with all these, like, needles sticking out of every extremity of hers. And they It's just her hands and her mouth, but it still looks okay. Yeah, but she's strung up by her feet and her her arms. Yeah. So oh oh my god. Anyway, so this is also one of those movies where you, the audience, learn something, and it's almost like it's a sentence typed out in a Word document, and then somebody, five minutes later, pushes backspace on the sentence, and you learn that story a, a different way. Yeah. Or if anything, it's like, some. It's I guess if anything, it's like you have an Excel sheet, and someone's like, oh, I hit a section of this Excel sheet, and like, they had a version of the thing. It's like a stupid way to describe this. But it's, God, we must be working in Excel, and, and yeah. we're Anyway, so sorry for the terrible office product uh, comparisons, but you get it. So but, this is a story where you learn something and then you have to relearn it because the version you learned was not the correct version. So, so the blue-haired woman, she tells the journalist that Komomo killed herself. Eh, wrong. That's not correct. He... and. The way we find out that that's not correct is he, after she tells him that Komomo killed herself, he goes, My Komomo would never do that. You're leaving something out. And he says it like that. He's so silly. He's such like a silly, dramatic dude. Because he's a journalist and journalists want to know more. I think he's a journalist because they (laughs) couldn't figure out a justification for him to jump to asking questions so immediately. Yeah, so weird. Yeah. So... Then the blue-haired girl's like, all right, you got me. That's not what happened. Uh, I killed Komomo, and I stole the ring, and I blamed it on Komomo. And he's like, you're still living something out. And that's... Well, hold on, because that that second retelling, there's a bunch of stuff. Right, but I wanted to just put that out of the way first. So, in the the first retelling, the the first time going through the story... The blue-haired girl starts to tell a little bit about her background and how she ended up on Whore Island, um, which, God, Whore Island would be, like, the biggest attraction in Las Vegas, don't you think? It seems like Whore Island is, like, a joke from BoJack Horseman or something. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the sexual version of Pinocchio. Yeah. <laughs> Treasure Island for adults, yeah. Uh, anyway, so 
She uh, reveals that her mom and dad, you know, they were very poor growing up, and she, uh, her mom, uh, helped women have um, ch children, and her dad was kind of like a, a sick guy. He was always sick, and and her mom took care of him. And uh, when she, uh, when when her mom and her dad ended up having her. It made their lives more complicated than they were even before. And so they ended up selling. Well, her, or, so her dad ends up dying from his sickness. And they end up selling. The mom ends up selling the daughter to like a carnival worker. It was like, I, it was I, kind of I, ambiguous. I, mean, I, was pretty, I, I was pretty sure it was like he was a pimp. And it was just, oh, yeah, a pimp, but like a guy who takes women to be in brothels. Like, it was uh, like sure. sell, sell their daughter off to a brothel. But because it's a Takashi Miike movie, the girl at this point is already wearing a blue wig, uh, and the man who picks her up to take her to the brothel looks like a stilt walker from a carnival. He's yeah. like periwinkle blue, and has like, like he looks needlessly like a giant clown man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, this scene is in the woods. Like, it's, there's yeah, it's nothing like a looks dirty like... river town. <laughs> yeah. So... That's the first version of the story we get. Then the second version we, of the story that we get is that uh, her dad is actually not sick. He's an alcoholic, and he abuses her mom. And it, her mom almost, uh, you know, like, didn't want to have a kid because of her dad, but she kept her and raised her. And her mom actually didn't help women have babies. What she actually did was helped women have abortions. And so... The disturbing content that we've been talking about that Showtime decided, no, we can't have this on our, our channel. Uh, it was the fact that because the woman performs abortions, there are several scenes in the movie where she just, like, dumps baby fetuses into a red. <laughs> I don't want to laugh because it's not funny. Yeah. But, but it's, <laughs> she dumps baby fetuses into a river and then the river, like, you know, takes the, the fetuses away. Yeah. And look at, if this movie was like palindromes or something, future secret cinema episode, where the, the abortion is treated like, like the, like it's, it's more focal and it's more grounded in humanity, then yes, this would be very tragic and upsetting. But we have seen a person tortured more or less to death with needles by this point, and <gasps> these are not, I don't know, it's not, it's not gruesome, it's gruesome in a way that's realistic, but I don't know, it just, the movie broke me by this point. I didn't yeah. care, and so when I, the first time, That's when a good it's way like, of putting it, because, yeah, when you see someone getting, like, needles stuck into their fingers and gums, and then the next scene, it's like a baby fetus, you're like, well, but you know like, what, that's not as bad. Let's take a moment to really describe this, because I do think a big part of this is... Not just that that we're broken by this point, but there's a lot of the way that he presents it that, like, I talked about this in the last episode about, like, directors backing away from something and just kind of presenting it neutrally. Mm -hmm. And this is as close to neutral of a depiction of a woman dumping aborted fetuses into a river as you can possibly get. There's no music to heighten it. Yeah. There's no camera angles to suggest that it's horrific. It's like a flat, low, like almost like an Ozu shot. Like a very calm, placid, low angle we're like kind of at maybe like knee height uh, further away down the river as the the mom, she walks into the river. She has a big tub. She reaches in the tub and picks up and holds so that we can see just long enough a 
human fetus that is like red and white it's clearly underdeveloped and she plops it in the river and then keeps walking and it is as neutral as that it is not heightened it, there's not even a lot of cuts or anything i think it's one long shot is the way we're introduced to like oh yeah she does this and it is definitely that moment you're you're supposed to have a little bit of a shock to it but it is not heightened <laughs> beyond that and so well and compared to the the scenes before it's it's not as shocking. Yeah, the needle, like I said, before. the needle you see and it's, feel I, it. I would say it's surprising because yeah. you're like, oh, I thought she was delivering babies, but actually she is performing abortions. That's different. That's yeah. not what I thought she was doing. And so, yeah, it's surprising, but the shock factor already happened. Yeah. They like set the bar, and then this is below the the shock bar. And really, too. Shock bar. And again, like, <laughs> if you are going to sit and be shocked by this, then there's, like, other shocks still coming. Like, the movie, I feel like... Oh, my anything, God. Actually, now that I'm talking it out, I feel like the needle scene has to happen so that you can focus enough to process everything else. Like, uh, uh, another equivalent, a totally crazy comparison, but another future Secret Cinema movie, Short Bus, famously has a lot of real sex scenes in the movie. And one of the things that, oh, the very first, like, stretch of the movie, like the opening scene where all the characters are introduced, ends with, uh, well, it features, like, like a shot of, like, urine coming out of a penis. And, like, uh, there's, like, a people really having sex. But the thing that I always and think of... And there's a guy... Are you thinking of the guy? I'm thinking of the guy who comes in his own mouth. Yeah. Like, the, there's, like, you... He's doing it for real. And it's one of those things, like, five minutes of the movie, you're like, the gauntlet is thrown down. This is the kind of movie it's gonna be. So later, when people are coming on each other and fucking each other, you're not like, wow, this is so shocking, because you've already been shocked. So you yeah, you knew, you knew what you're getting into. You can focus on everything else. And that's kind of how I maybe the needle scene is intended to function, because what happens to the rest of the movie just keeps getting crazier and crazier, but you're already shocked, so you're more just like, oh, okay this is where we're going now all right yeah <laughs> not, not necessarily in a good way but in a way that is like certainly horrifying i kept thinking during this movie i was like the movie isn't really scary but it does meet my uh my, the low bar of being genuinely horrific like this is a yeah it's a horror movie. movie yeah it is definitely a horror movie uh <laughs> I, I kept writing down some of the dialogue in the hopes, because this was the first time I watched it, so I, I wrote down some of the dialogue in the hopes that it would come back and and uh, be relevant. So um, after blue-haired woman tells the journalist um, that she killed Kamomo, he goes, there's still more you're not <laughs> telling me! You need Do you like my journalist voice? It's very accurate. <laughs> You need to tell me more. And she says, do you really want to know? And I think that could very possibly be the tagline for this movie. Also, after <laughs> she says, do you really want to know? He says, I don't want to know. I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he says it just like that. That was good. We're nailing it. Yeah. High fives. Um, so, uh, yeah, do you really want to know? That is my tagline for this movie, because if you don't want, really want to know, then don't watch this movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, she also at one point says, 
this island isn't in the human world, which I thought was pretty, yeah. pretty accurate. <laughs> but okay, so she, so after he says, I need to know, she's like, all right, well, here's the truth. The truth is, uh, my parents weren't actually poor. They were uh, brother and sister, and they got kicked out of their town because they were, like, fucking each Which other. Which means, boom, two episodes in a row about incest, or at least invoking incest. <laughs> Jeez. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, I guess it's uh, more widespread than I thought. But yeah. anyway... Also, this is like 1800s Japan or something. So, 1900s? I miss that. I miss the time frame. I think it's 1800s. There's no cell phones or anything. There's a lot of uh, people having abortions in the woods. <laughs> so it doesn't, it's certainly not modern era. Yeah, they take a boat to get to Whore Island. Yeah. But it's actually more like a canoe. So there's no like, there's no like motor or anything. And it's not, it seemed like they went through a swamp. It was like... <laughs> It was like, maybe it wasn't an island, it was just like, the path to get there was really tough, and so it was just easier to take a boat. No, it's an island! No, I know, she... I'm just saying it seemed, it, it seemed like more like a swamp that they went through than like, swamp a, island. like a lake or anything. Yeah, that's true. But nitpicking. Okay, so, uh, she, so her parents are brother and sister, when, um, her mom ends up pregnant and has her, she ends up throwing her in the river, like she does with all the aborted fetuses, and two days later, she discovers the baby is still alive in the river. And that's when she decides to raise her. And we also learn in this particular flashback that a Buddhist monk who's in the first two flashback, flashbacks as the blue-haired girl's friend uh, wasn't actually her friend. He actually uh, molested her. Yeah. Or it's, like, alluded to that he molests her. Yeah, there's a thing, I just realized, we kind of forgot to mention, it's not super important, but um, she, uh, the, the blue-haired girl talks about how nobody liked her because of how she looked, except this Buddhist monk. And the Buddhist monk introduced her to the concept of hell. Yeah. And if you do a bad thing, you will go to hell. And so she talks about when she killed Komomo, the reasoning behind killing Komomo for her was that um, Komomo the, the was... The one thing she can't stand is kindness. But also specifically that Komomo was a good person. And it, like because she was being friends with someone like Blue Hair, that that would make her be seen as evil. And so she killed her in so such a horrible way. So that she would be seen as pure. Like, because, as she says, like, how pathetic is it to be killed by the one you trust most? And then she says something along the lines of, because of that, Buddha will be waiting for her and take her by the hand in the afterlife because he knows mm -hmm. she died as a good person. Yeah. And so it's, like, horrific, but it's, like, that's, like... Really the, dark. The, the subtext that's going along with it the whole time. And then when the Buddhist molests her, it kind of gets tied to this idea of, like... There's sin related to the abortion. Like, she says, like, like that hole leads to, like, she, I think she's specifically referring to the vagina. She calls that, it a hole, yeah. That hole leads to sin. And then when the Buddhist molests her, she says the other hole leads to sin, which seemed to me like... Like it was, an anal thing? Like an anal yeah, thing. Uh... But uh, either way, the point is that, like, people, like, she sees, like, she just sees... This, this, there's this no one, good holes. There's no good, even. Like, everything is bad, and, like, there's, um, there is, she can try to do good things, but she is, like, condemned by association and, and stuff like that. Um, and so, 
after she learns all this uh, is when her father, after, like, a, a beating her mother for, like, like she, he's like relentlessly beating her uh, in these flashbacks. Yeah. Uh, she, he decides to like rape the daughter, and he rapes the daughter, and he goes out that night to pee, and the daughter kills come, him. Kills him, beats him to death. Uh, she by the looks river. like she bludgeons him to death. Yeah, bludgeons, definitely bludgeons him to death. Um, and so you know she's a murderer twice over, but that's not all, folks. Yeah. So there's another big reveal. Um, and. The big reveal is that uh, blue-haired girl is a twin. So, as we kind of mentioned, we call her blue-haired girl because, uh, the, like, she's not really given a name. Her but hair she's, is blue. She's in in the flashbacks. We always see her wearing this big blue wig, and it's like we see her as a, a baby. And then it cuts to, as soon as you see her not a baby, she's wearing a blue wig. And it seems like, like, one of the first times I see, you see it is when she's telling the story of, like, being taken to the brothel by the clown man. And so it's like, oh, blue hair clown man, whatever. This is Takashi Miike just being weird. And so you don't really question the yeah. blue wig. But, uh... <laughs> but you should always question always the blue question wig. Always question the blue wig. Because basically what happens is... The reason the incest thing is there is because the mom, the mom and dad are brother and sister. They have sex and give birth to twins, but the twins are Siamese twins. It's I just, just realized that's, that's, case. I just realized that's sort of racist to say Siamese twins are talking about an Asian movie. So yeah. uh, I'll say a conjoined twins, but conjoined to the extent that there's blue hair and her conjoined sister is a hand. That is on her head, and it, for when she's born, it's fairly tiny, it's just like a little mouth. But as she, when she grows up, it's like a hand a with hand. a mouth and eyes and teeth that like <laughs> folds and talks, but like is attached to her scalp, so it has to like peel up off of her scalp. To oh start my talking. god, it's so weird. Yeah, it's 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 like somebody took a hand. And Drew, well, no, not Drew, because it looked real. It has eyes and, like you said, a mouth yeah. and a tongue. It and gesticulates. The it moves. There was and a puppeteer just, moving But it's hand. just, like, sticking out of the top of the right side of her head. Yeah. And the key is that the reason her face looks the way it is is because that extra skin is being pulled up to form, like, Oh man, I didn't even yeah. get that. And, oh. and so it's like it's like fairly clever makeup. It's like it looks like oh she just has like a deformed face, but like it's justified by the the creatures revealed. But so that's why the mom throws her in the river, presumably, is because it's a monster. Yeah. And then the baby survives, so the mom keeps her alive. Uh, and then uh, it's revealed that that like the hand isn't just like it isn't just one of those things where it's like the the conjoined twin is like barely alive or whatever it's like a fully conscious personality it's more or less like two personalities live inside of this woman yeah. but only one of them has a body and so it's kind of revealed that like, but I, I i got the impression that the the hand sister uh was mentally a little lacking yeah, well, it's like she... It's she, more primal. She, Yeah, she represents, like, she does... She's the one who does the bad things. Like She's, she's like the literal id. She's the one who kills the father. She's the one who yeah. takes over and kills the father. She's the one who steals 
the green, the jade ring from the the madam, uh, and then uh, but like as as blue hair emphasizes, she, uh, blue hair is the one who decides to kill Komomo because of what she believes about evil. But the the hand is the one who wanted to take the ring. Yeah. And um, also, I just I just remembered this before I get too far away. There's a nice little touch, and it's really haunting when you realize what the touch means. But at where the mom and the dad and blue hair live out in the mountains of Japan. They have this creek, and then on the other side of the creek from where they live, there's a series of pinwheels. And you kind of just see it for a lot of, like, for the first half of the movie, whenever they show this flashback, you see the pinwheels briefly, and they aren't really touched on. Um, but there is uh, a you very, like, later on, once you finally know that the mother is an abortionist, they, there's this brief sequence where. Someone will dump a baby into the river and then it will cut to blue hair adding a pinwheel to the pinwheels. And so every pinwheel, and there's like, I want to say there's like 50 or so pinwheels, maybe more than that, uh, is a fetus that was aborted. And every time they do another one, another one gets added. And it's not really, it doesn't really pay off in any way. It's just a very subtle texture detail, but... When I, when I, when you catch that, it's just, it's really, it's really haunting. Like, it's just really haunting to allude to the immensity of the abortion operation. Yeah, that was a nice visual. Yeah. I, I, there were a couple of things where at the end, I thought that there was like a really nice foreshadowing at the beginning. It's hard to say that anything was really nice about this movie because it was so gruesome, but yeah. like even the dead pregnant woman at the beginning was like a a good foreshadow to yeah. later things that happen. Well, and there's a a beautiful shot um I, well not a beautiful shot but a really amazing shot where it's when the mom gives birth to blue hair and there's this thing they show a couple times in the movie where when the women give birth they they do it like not standing but they're like upright holding a rope. And so the mom is upright holding the rope we're filmed from behind we're filmed through this gap in like uh, what's it called? Like a like a straw wall or like a straw like like some sort of thing in inside like a wall. There were a lot of shots like that, uh, like peephole shots where you kind of see through the exterior wall yeah. inside. But this specific shot, it was an interior wall, and there's like a jagged hole. So you're watching this woman give birth, which is something very painful, and she's doing it in a very uncomfortable looking way, and then outlining her but not in a perfect way are all these little jutting straw pieces like yeah. almost like jutting into her body so it like kind of visualizes this pain uh, and this like total level of discomfort or at least like the lack of pleasure being in this and it's like dry and sharp and jagged like as a visual i love that i thought that was like immediately evocative for like the pain of that kind of pregnancy that's being yeah. depicted yeah like i said I there were a lot of peephole or like wall uh, framing shots that I thought were really uh, effective. Yeah, they did that a lot with when they were inside the the brothel with sliding doors or window panes. Uh, it it was nice. Oh, all right. So oh we more or less talked about everything that happened. So let's kind of talk about the ending because the ending is. Confusing? confusing. I tend to have this problem. I had this problem with audition. Not all of audition, but Carrie asked me before the movie to like go over the plot, and I realized I couldn't quite explain the ending, despite having seen this movie, like audition like three times, because I don't know. There's certain things in in like some of these horror movies from Japan where I feel like 
I just don't get the social cue or I don't get the, like there's like some sort of cultural thing that I just don't know the reference to. And so I miss a lot of these endings like audition. Like I said, I, maybe I'm just stupid and I missed something, but I had the same thing with cure by Kiyoshi Kurosawa and to a similar extent pulse by Kurosawa. <clears throat> and I definitely had it with this where it seems like there's several things being hinted at, but it happens in a way where, I don't know. And again, maybe this, I, I don't know if it's just me missing this or I'm only watching movies that I missed the ending of, but more or less so blue hair tells the story and her hand is like fully present and the hand starts talking as Komomo to the journalist and saying like, I waited for you. I, I loved you so much. And he says, my favorite line in the whole movie, this place is truly a damned place. <laughs> but, um, then he like pulls a gun and he shoots blue hair and then shoots blue hair again in the head and blue hair turns into Komomo. Yeah. And Komomo, like, reaches into the, the back, back of her, her head, head and pulls out a bunch of brains. And and then she falls down. She falls down. And then the next scene, he's in a, uh, a jail. Yeah. And the guards say, we're going to have fun with you. We're going to torture you. Uh, get ready. And he uh, is about to go drink the water from his bucket and eat the food. And inside the bucket is a dead fetus. Yeah. But... And then when he when he sees it's a dead fetus, he cradles the bucket with the dead fetus and like sings it a lullaby. And then in the background of the shot are the ghost of Komomo. And then it's very quickly meant it's like very briefly and quickly mentioned that the journalist was wanted for murder in America, uh, for murdering his sister. Yeah, and but he said like, Komomo reminded him of his sister we only find out about the murder at the very end so yeah so my confusion is so did the journalist actually kill komomo and it was all an illusion because they were on that weird island or did and did he kill komomo because she reminded him of his sister and he and it's established that he killed his sister well and remember too the hand even like it was like i know about your sister so like it's it's information that the hand um, on Blue Hair's head could get. But also, okay, and that's another thing on top of all this. Did you notice that when he's in jail, he has a green wig on? Yes. And so I was like, okay, so does he have a hand on his head now? Is that what is being implied? I don't know. Yeah, it was, a, it's a very, it's funny because the, the ending is like very swift. Yeah. And... Nothing's really explained, and it, like I said, it ends with like the <laughs> ghosts of Komomo and his his little sister, who is probably like eight, maybe six, uh, and they're in his jail cell while he is cradling this fetus that's in a bucket and singing it a lullaby. So it made me think that he's gone crazy, yeah. <laughs> and that whole scene with the blue-haired woman was just like him being tortured. And him revealing to maybe the police that he killed Komomo. Or, yeah. like, why he killed Komomo? I don't know. Yeah, it it definitely... And, I mean, like, they had... They were they let him keep the aborted fetuses in needle torture in, so it doesn't seem like they're like, oh, we gotta cut this plot short or something like that. Yeah. It really seems like the movie he set out to make in a lot of ways. So it's... Again, but like I, I said, I genuinely... And I'm not 
saying that this is like a problem with their filmmaking. I'm saying I genuinely have a problem with understanding the endings of Japanese horror movies, like almost unilaterally. It's like the like a huge blank spot in my brain. I don't have this problem with like Ozu films or like Mo or like Kurosawa movies or just like any like non horror Kiyoshi Kurosawa films. But it's like horror specifically. I I don't know. It's like like kind of like what we're talking about with like the thing that really upsets Americans is not the needle torture because clearly Saw movies have not have proven that Americans yeah, love it. It's, it's the, the abortion. Yeah. It's a fetus floating down a river or the fact that abortion happens in the movie. Oh God and forbid. So, so that so that's like. As much as, like, I am embarrassed that I have so much trouble with these endings, but there's also a clear-cut example right here of, like, different standards of horror in different cultures. Yeah. Like, just by that right there. I, I'll, I'll say for myself that the needle stuff is way worse yes. than the, the fetuses. Yeah. Obviously, uh... I've been to medical museums where they have, uh, fetus fetuses in a jar and so i've seen what those look like also let's be and real. i've looked at a medical book before and so that's not shocking to me what's shocking is like watching someone getting tortured uh with searing needles oh let's, let's be really i'll be really hardcore about it a dead fetus is a fact of life you will there will be dead fetuses no matter what if we live in a utopia until we live in, like, a utopia where miscarriage is cured, there will still be dead fetuses. That is a thing. You most likely will never be needle tortured, or no someone who is needle tortured. It is not something that you ever will have to deal with. And so we should be able to deal with uh, abortion or miscarriage or just fetus-related content, but we're a bunch of religious pussies in America, so we can't deal with it. But needles? Cool. Stab whoever you want with as many needles as you want. People pay for acupuncture! I mean, so it's like, clearly, I mean, that's like universal, but like, people love having needles in their body. Clearly, this is something that Carrie and I are wrong about, and it's not as bad as it's We're just up. laying down the law yeah. on, on how people no should... No needles. I just, ugh, yeah, gross. It's funny, too, because I, I, we just got flu shots in my office, and people were freaking out about the needles. Yeah, I mean, I have, I'm, I'm, I have a pretty big needle fear, but my thing is just be like, as soon as I get in there, just make it go as quick as possible, and just don't think, and just, just think about something else. If I, if it's going to take a while, I always tell the nurse, like, talk to me. Please, talk to me about anything. Yeah. Talk to me about the weather. I don't care. Just keep I brought, I had one of these, uh, those little, like, hand squeezer things, like exercise ball. Yeah. And I brought that in for everybody. I was like, here, if you need this, squeeze it. So <laughs> <laughs> you're a good person to work with, Gary. Thanks, Paolo. Speaking well, of which, what's your teachable moment? Well, okay, you want to get into teachable moments? Yeah. Because well, I, I feel like I've said my piece about this movie. All right, well, broadly, I have a few things I would say. You have not said your teachable moment because you teach no. me no, I know. That's why right. I swung it over to you first. I think you said my piece is in like, so I don't have to do a teacher <laughs> alone. Right. Uh, I am sneaky, but not that right. sneaky. Well, again, I want to reinstate that for a teacher lesson for myself is I need to learn how to understand the end of Japanese horror movies because I, I, I don't know. It's like a, a perfect, a similar example is that when I watch French movies, I cannot tell anybody apart. 
Like, when I watched <laughs> Alhazar and Balthazar, I genuinely got lost in the plot because white French people look so similar to me, especially when they're filmed in black and white. And so it's like, I... It's, I, I don't know. I'm just so racist. I'm Alice. super racist. And I just really apologize. I just really want to emphasize this. I'm telling you the truth about me. I don't think this reflects on the people I'm talking about. Just laugh at me and my stupidity. But my teachable <laughs> lesson is that I think watching this movie, it kind of made me realize that some of the most effective horror movies still, because this topic is very taboo, is pregnancy related horror movies. <gasps> and to give you a perfect example yeah. of how broad but applicable this is alien is a pregnancy related horror movie it is a man gets to experience what it's like to be raped and then have something that is a that you don't want inside of you come out and every part of the pregnancy is is put in the context of horror and that is why alien is so deeply terrifying still like well and we just watched uh we went to music box of horrors and the uh, programmer talked about how there's this like niche uh, horror genre of pregnancy-related horror movies, and he brought up The Brood, yeah, and uh, I thought of Demon Seed. Demon <laughs> Seed, yes. Um, uh, what's the one um, where oh the woman gets the baby like cut out of her? Oh, Inside. Inside. Oh, Inside is so good, but it's so fucked up and so stressful. Yeah. And even the one we just, we watched at, at Music Box, the Manitou, uh, <laughs> yeah, that one's a little more silly than... But still, like, the I, the, the idea of pregnancy being something scary. Because it's already scary. Yeah, but, like, again, we're kind of talking about the fear that comes with, like, fetuses and everything is because in America, pregnancy is presented as, like, a nothing but a universal good. It's like, you aren't supposed to complain. Like, if you have a miscarriage, you don't talk about it. You don't bum people out about it, even though it's like, everybody has had a miscarriage. Yeah. Like, but you can't talk about it because we can only think of pregnancy. Like, pregnancy is like guns in America, where it can only be seen as good, and you are a monster if you talk about it any other way. And so, you see those movies where, like, every once in a while, a woman or a woman's point of view gets... Just gets into Hollywood and we get to see, like, hey, pregnancy is scary. Like, Rosemary's Baby is even, like, kind of yeah. about this. Um, of, like, yeah, sometimes things that we force women to just be 100% on board with are kind of scary. And the lack of control or uh, the feeling of having, like, another person inside of you is really fucking scary. In yeah, the right one, circumstance. Of, one of my uh, Facebook friends who is pregnant, she just wrote on Facebook that... Uh, her, she could feel her baby having hiccups inside of her. Yeah, weird. Super weird. So weird. That's that's scary to me. But I wonder what happened to the baby where it got hiccups. <laughs> too, too much, too much food. I don't know. She bumped into a, a table in like the corner, like maybe saw like a triangle coming at it. Was like, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I guess my my teachable moment is that I think we should pay more attention to. Uh, the way in which pregnancy is used in horror and pregnancy horror as a genre because it says a lot about us as a culture and it shows that uh, there is still horror to be found in American culture. There's still taboos in American culture. <laughs> like that was a question. I know, right? Yeah, but I, but still, like it's <laughs> there's still horror to be found in American culture. But overall, just the point is that yeah, there is a genre that is exploring something very universal that is still a subgenre because it's something we don't want to talk about. Yeah. But 
on that same tack, because it's still a subgenre, it's still very fresh and still very effective in a way that a lot of other subgenres, let's say werewolf movies, aren't. <laughs> so, but they should be. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll let some coyotes loose into a busy neighborhood, and then we'll get some good <laughs> movies. All right, that sounds good to me. Um, okay, my teachable moment is more of a uh, personal teachable moment. Um, I think that as someone who watches a lot of movies, it's good to know your boundaries. <laughs> it's good to know what you can and cannot handle. Um, myself, I, uh, I pretty easily have nightmares um, from some things. It's usually things that I don't think I'd have nightmares from. Um, so it's not night like I can prevent having nightmares from them. But I know for myself that if I watch uh, realistic zombie movies, I will have zombie nightmares. So I tend to avoid them. And I think it's always good when you're approaching a horror movie to have an idea of what you're going into. Because I hear so often from people like, oh, well, I don't like horror movies. And just a blanket statement of I don't like horror movies you're missing out on so much because there are probably horror movies that you like or, or that you'd find really enjoyable because there's actually even a horror comedy genre. Yeah. How many people who say they hate horror like Shaun of the Dead? Right. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of things of, of horror movies out there that are, like, really a appealing to a mass audience but everybody thinks of horror as like, well, I don't want to be scared or I don't want to be grossed out. And those are two things I can totally respect because I personally don't like to be grossed out. And I, I do enjoy being scared every once in a while. But um, like for my like I mentioned, my personal boundaries are like very realistic zombie movies. And then I am just really not into the whole torture porn horror uh genre like i just i i can't watch those saw movies i can't watch uh we watched hostile 2 and that was even you know like a little tough for me and i just don't get any enjoyment about uh from watching that and so the fact that paulo gave me a free pass when we watched uh this movie imprint to not watch the torture scene <laughs> was really awesome because i was able to enjoy the movie without having that scene kind of ruined the movie for me. And as a side note, um, this really speaks to effective sound design. You should definitely pay attention to the sound design and imprint. The fact that Carrie could cover her eyes in the torture scene and still have the effect put in her brain, that's good sound design. Yeah. Yeah, it is good sound design. Um, but like I said earlier, the tagline I think for this movie is, do you really want to know? And sometimes the answer to that question can be, no, you don't have to know what, like, you don't have to put yourself through a movie if you don't think you're going to enjoy it. Like, for example, I will never watch uh, Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah. Because why would I do that to myself? But because you know people who told you, don't watch it, Carrie. Right, exactly. But also, like this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you told, you told me you and four men cried together. Yeah, I feel like this has been covered on the podcast before. Yeah, I don't want to watch. I don't want to watch that movie. So yeah, uh, my teachable moment is just encouraging our audience to know their own personal boundaries.
Yeah, that sounds good to me. <laughs> All right, good. All right, well, we somehow have talked... Well, I mean, it was only 50... Well, it's actually, it was like an hour-long movie, so this uh, discussion has gone about as long as the movie, so let's... Uh, Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. Very awkwardly. Nice work about this outro. Uh, this has been The Secret Cinema. I'm Paolo. I'm Carrie. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Happy Halloween. Baby, close your eyes. And don't you cry over a walking sleep for you won't sleep deep The Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Carone. All theme songs and original music are written and performed by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples are taken from the film featured on this week's episode. All logos and artwork are created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at CarrieSawThis and see more of her artwork at www.CarrieChafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at www.vimeo.com slash or read more of his ramblings about film at www.letterbox.com slash paoloerasmus. Follow The Secret Cinema on Instagram at Secret Cinema Podcast, on Twitter at Covert Celluloid, or like us on Facebook. The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. The Secret Cinema is a product of Larry Leafy Productions. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening! Ah!